0: I wear that because it's my favorite uh, Halloween costume—the grumpy old man. Yes, that's why I. Oh, hi! It's Pete Palmisano, and welcome to another edition of RLTPS Off Road. This week, we're putting this whole Halloween season to bed with a special Halloween edition of RLTPS Off Road, featuring Mason Winfield, acknowledged to be the upstate authority in the paranormal. He's an award-winning best-selling author about the paranormal and the supernatural and, you know, folklore of all sorts of things. And, uh, oh, and he's also the creator of many of the local ghost walks that you may or may not have uh, been on. And they were featured in uh, gusto a couple of weeks ago. So Mason Winfield's going to be here to tell you all about himself and all about his work in the paranormal and the psychic and the supernatural. And as I said, this is sort of a, putting a cherry on top of the whole Halloween season, but I hope we don't put an end to the whole pumpkin spice season, because I'm, I'm working my way through a package of pumpkin spice Oreos, if you can believe such a thing, and they're pretty darn good. So anyway, without further ado, let's talk to Mr. Mason Winfield. He's appeared at many conventions for sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. He's written or edited 12 books. He, is probably the world authority on the mystical occult and the supernatural, and if not the world authority, certainly the uh, Eastern United States (laughs) authority. So here's Mason Winfield to tell you all about spooky things that go bump in the night (laughs) here on our LTPs Off-Road. That sign that used to be up on the wall for the X-Files, I want to believe. I want to believe almost everything. And, and nothing spooks me out too much. Cool. But I am a, a great subscriber to, I don't know who said this first, some great philosopher, or it might have been Arthur C. Clarke, who said that life is not only stranger than we than we imagine, it is stranger than we can imagine. And that's <sighs> pretty much what I believe. Yeah. Uh, it has nothing to do with mysticism or religion or anything But I think that there's just a whole other level of being. At least I hope there is, because the older I get,
1: (laughs) you know... Yeah, this one. The more I hope that... uh, It's pretty effed. This level needs help.
0: There's there's something else to come. So, anyway, your fascination with the paranormal and the occult, supernatural? It's included. Why don't you tell me where you come from with this fascination with the paranormal? Where where does it come from?
1: Well... I get asked that a lot. Just about every other talk I give, somebody asks me that. I usually say, you know, all American kids like monsters. Why didn't I grow up? Yes. I've always had a private, personal interest in supernatural paranormal. And I would say probably 20% of the reading I did as a kid was in that area of research. But something must have spurred some. Were you like me? Were you Saturday afternoon movies?
0: There was always a Frankenstein movie? Oh, sure, yeah. Oh, yeah, all over it.
1: Dracula or something? Oh, I was the the type kid who thought The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad was just about the perfect movie if it only had a couple more monsters. (laughs) Monsters. You know, I, I just used to love that. They'd send me to art class. You know, I'd be like six or something. The teacher would go, all he does is draw dinosaurs. But that's a far cry from dinosaurs to monsters, to
0: the occult, and, and paranormal. Or, yes. Or, or in your mind, is it all sort of connected?
1: Oh, it's remotely connected. But, <laughs> see, I was a lit man. I have a master's degree in Brit Lit. And, I mean, it's a good master's. You know, I mean, I studied real serious literature. And you know, I wanted to be a writer, but I got a lit degree because I figured, look, you you can't... you gotta, uh, gotta pay your dues, you yeah. know? Yeah. And... Um, It's a good master's. And I went to a a rigorous school, Boston College, because I knew I was going to learn how to research there. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a good master's, you can read and write the hell out of anything. It puts you in pretty good shape, a good lit research degree. I was an English teacher at the boarding school, country boarding school. It's a gao school? Gao school, yeah, dyslexic youth. Toughest job you'll ever love. But I decided education was no longer my field. Mm. And I went freelance. You know, I just got out of teaching, and I was thinking, okay, I've got a chance to remold my career. I can maybe get a PhD in, you know, some of the subjects I'm interested in and keep the ghost thing as a sort of a private interest. And then the TV is on, there's the X files and I go, (laughs) oh my God, the public has an enormous interest in this stuff. And um, I I also thought that I could go at it rather objectively. I could be a good researcher and it's been a good decision. So you had,
0: you always had the
1: personal interest, but at a
0: certain point you said, you know what? There, there's a whole—and I wanted to ask you that, too. There's a whole world of people who are so fascinated by right. all of these subjects. Right. Where does that come from? I mean, why are we so fascinated with the afterlife, with the occult, with things that go bump in the night, with sure. the Night Stalker, you know, it, Kolchak, the Night Stalker, X-Files, even the Twilight Zone? Why are we so Fascinated by this these subjects. Well I'm or, flattered uh,
1: that you think I've got the answer. I would <laughs> I'm tell you for an answer. Okay. Well I, I two things came to mind. I hope I remember the second one after the first. <laughs> one of them is, I mean, the, the fundamental question of parapsychology is is there a possibility of the human soul mm-hmm. and a life after death? That's the first question of parapsychology. And yet they almost never ask it because parapsychology, which is the scientific study of Spooky stuff, psychic mm-hmm. phenomena, mm-hmm. not parent, not paranormal in general, but just that component dealing with the human organism, psychic phenomena, ghosts, ESP and all that. Things
0: that there appear to be no explanation for, but occur sort of randomly in nature with human beings. So that's the study of it. Is that what or am I?
1: Parapsychology saying is the study of human, okay. apparently supernatural gifts and talents. Are we and talking
0: ESP and Yeah, it's included, and... right. Yes, okay.
1: absolutely. Those are included. Mm-hmm. And if you can't prove they exist, you can't prove there's an immaterial component about human life. Mm-hmm. And if you can't prove that, God and afterlife are gone. Yeah. And that's pretty much where parapsychology has stalled. But as far as the fascination with monsters and all that, Carl Jung, the great psychoanalyst, would have said that a lot of the monsters that are... Roughly human form, like the werewolf and, you know, the zombies and the vampires, and, you know. <laughs> they represent a dark side of the human personality. They represent the shadow. They represent the monstrous side of each of us. Mm-hmm. And responsible people don't want to give in to their dark impulses. Are we talking the id? Yeah. In those sorts well, of things? Well, that's Freudian. but that's yeah, Freudian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the same? Yeah, Freudian. it's sort of the uncontrolled impulses in us, Mm -hmm. because when we were little children, you know, little babies, they get frustrated, and they have temper tantrums, and they hit things. Well, when adults do that, the prisons and the uh, uh, psychiatric asylums are full of people who cannot control their impulses. Mm -hmm. They do bad things to other people impulsively. Responsible people don't want to do that. As a matter of fact, we're terrified of losing control and doing something bestial to another human being without being able to control it. Mm -hmm. So the prospect of that terrifies us, and a visual image that symbolizes us losing it, like a werewolf, it's the bestial side of us. Mm. So I think that's probably the reason the monsters, at least the human form monsters, fascinate us so much. Because we recognize in them something that we are suppressing in ourselves? That's very well said. I'll I'll use that next time. (laughs) And people will think I invented it. That's a great line. It's all yours.
0: No, well done. Did you ever read the book *Childhood's End* by Arthur C.
1: Clarke? Probably.
0: A science fiction book. Thirty years book. ago, uh, there are hundreds of movies that have been based on it. These giant flying saucers appear over every major city in the world, mm-hmm. and they made a, a quite a decent adaptation of it on the Sci-Fi Channel a few years ago. It posits the possibility that all of that we're all connected in some kind of the force sort of way. Oh. That there's this psychic something or other that is only among humans. And this alien race has come here partially to find out why they don't have it. Because that psychic thing that connects all of us will actually lead to our next level of evolution. And they mm-hmm. will never evolve beyond. They're way advanced from where we are now. But they want to know why they are stuck here. And we are going to leapfrog over them.
1: Two very salient points you brought up are implied in your statement. One is... This concept of the force. Mm-hmm. Most pre-industrial world societies had an idea that there was a universal force mm-hmm. going through the universe, and that is the force of life, of, of godhead, mm-hmm. of magic. Connecting not only us, but us to the rest of the universe. They probably didn't think beyond the Earth, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. um, but the other point you raised is, you may have heard of a, of Project Blue Book, of Alan course. Hynek. Of course. Okay. I can't tell you how much I admire this man, but he was basically... I
0: wrote my high school senior
1: term paper on UFOs and Hynek and Project Blue Book. Good job. Well, (laughs) this man was a serious scientist, a serious scholar, and, you know, shortly after World War II, interest in UFOs was was growing. And um, he started out as a sort of a materialist, skeptic debunker. Mm -hmm. As time went on... He wasn't sure what the phenomenon was, but he was very interested in it. And I believe it was Heineck who came up towards the end of his life with a theory that possibly the the force that drove the UFOs was, was psychic. Hmm. It was from within the mind. Hmm. And not the human mind, of course. It was maybe from the alien mind. But he concluded that these things didn't so much travel as just appear. Hmm. They're just here, and then they go there. Which explains their incredibly impossible speeds and, and maneuverability. It does, but there's a lot of other question marks with UFOs. For instance, if they do want us to see them, why don't they land and talk to us? Exactly. And if they don't want us to see them, why can we? You know? Come on, guys. Really, in this field, if, the paranormal. If you can do all of the rest of this. You run into a lot of crazy ideas. And some of them are really nifty, and some of them, what? You know, it's like they need a landing. They just crossed the universe, and they want us to make a landing strip for them on the Nazca Plateau. And, That's right. you know, and it's like, come on, guys. Let's get real here, you know.
0: Just quickly, I, since we're talking about TV and movies and things like that, I know that you don't have a fondness for the way the, the, the parapsychological paranormal is, is usually presented. And, and, and On TV. On TV. Is it because...
1: You could just tell me. Sure. Why do they think the public is stupid? You know, maybe they act like it, but but when that's their only choice, the public can only pick from among its choices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be, among my many plans for the coming year, I'm going to be working on possibly a a video pilot for an an investigation of an important haunted site, or allegedly haunted site, based on my philosophy and it's not going to be running around the dark with the camera but i would say the big problem i have with with tv style supernatural slash paranormal stuff is that it's not based on research it's based on the general public's suppositions Mm -hmm. about you know if you want to see the dead go to a haunted house it'll they'll act up every night i mean wait a minute. <laughs> Wouldn't science believe in it if it was that easy? Mm-hmm. If you walk in there and get your camera out and you get these orbs and that's the sign of a human spirit attempting to manifest. And, you know, my skeptical friend, Joe Nickel, uh, English PhD, by the way, and he's one of the he- heavy hitters in the local uh, society of, uh, of debunk, you know, basically the debunkers, the psychops, CSI, COPS, mm-hmm. Center for Inquiry. They're materialists. They don't believe any of this stuff. But Joe Nickel, Honestly, I agree with him a lot of the time. And he was describing the general philosophy behind TV Ghost hunting. and he goes, you know, if you think about it, it's, it's so stupid, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you just show up after dark, walk around, and, and, and there's you, you take your pictures, and you're going to get these splotches, which you get them a lot of places, not just haunted theaters. And mm-hmm. You know, I, I hate to be so vehement about it, but when you see the potential of what we could be doing to lift discussion to lift the bar to educate, to inform because there's things are so much more interesting than that mm-hmm. and they're so much more complicated and and that's that's sort of what I've discovered in my study.
0: I have a quote from you that, that says paranormal uh, truth needs to be authentic and you describe yourself as is not your interest is more folkloric than scientific is that because? You're not focused in trying to explain these things, but you're trying to just simply keep track of them, record them, uh, keep a historical record of them because you're, these things happen. You're doing happen.
1: pretty well. My my spectrum is pretty pretty scattered. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I usually describe myself as a supernatural historian or a folklorist, mm-hmm. but those are pretty noble titles for a guy with a lit degree. You know, I'm not true. You know, you're a folklorist if you are hired to do folklore. I'm a, a freelancer. But that sort of describes the work I do. I kind of chronicle this stuff. But it doesn't mean I don't speculate. Mm -hmm. I I do. And I do keep up with the research in parapsychology. I'm a guy who looks for connections between certainties. And in the field of the paranormal, there are very few certainties. Mm -hmm. Virtually none. There are patterns. There are profiles. And that's what I look for. Mm -hmm. If somebody tells me they saw a ghost, I have two certainties. One is... Somebody told me a story that they perceive to be supernatural. That's a fact. The mm-hmm. truth of it may not be, but that's, that's fact one. That's fact one, sure. And I've got a site, a place where it happened. And that's factoid, too. Story, place. And I do have people that will go, oh, hey, I saw a ghost. Okay, where? Well, it's a secret. I go go home. <laughs> you know, come back when you're serious. I will be confidential. I'm not going to blow in somebody's house, but yet, that's a vital part of an interview. Where did it happen? Sure. Because there's such a connection between sight and stories. Hmm. Oh yeah. There's lots of places in the world that get no stories. There are some that get lots of them. Like old theaters, for example, all theaters this get this ghost is story. I'm sure fairly, you guys are safe here. Really brand new. Just go yet. to sleep, my friend. Don't worry about it. You know. <laughs> but you are interested in the
0: scientific, in researching the science behind things, or are you more interested in simply recording the events and keeping track of them and and well, ma- making a, a history of them.
1: Yeah, I'd say that's more what I do mm-hmm. is to try to preserve. A generation of folklore. Not
0: deny or explain, but oh, right, right down right. the middle.
1: Uh, simply, yes. Record what happened. That is what I do. That is what you do. I, and that's my perspective too. It's right down the middle. Mm-hmm. There is an extreme to one side that don't believe in the possibility, right, of anything supernatural, and then there's an extreme to the other side that believe almost everything. Believes everything. <laughs> yeah, they think they talk to spirits every day. I see. And that sort of a person is of very little use to me as an interview subject. Yes. It's like if you see spirits every day, what's unique about your your story? I compare the field of the paranormal to American politics. You've got these extremes at each Uh, end. Sure. Except the good news about American politics is you've got a very large middle ground. That's the electorate. Mm -hmm. That will decide an election. You've got a very large group of people that are center left or center right, but they're Mm -hmm. not wacky either way. Right. With the paranormal, that. Middle ground is tiny, mm. and I think it's tiny because of the, the lack of serious information. It's like TV. You know, let's face it: most people get their impressions about supernatural subjects from TV, film. Maybe they read a few books, but they read they get it from entertainment. Mm-hmm. I get mine from serious folklore and parapsychology.
0: So let's let's go back again to see how you got into this because. Uh, well, you, first of all, you're you're a local guy, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you, I don't East know. Aurora. East Aurora. Yeah, I was oh, raised in Western. The Roycrofters, the East. Well, we'll talk sure. about them shortly. Beautiful place. Uh, nice people. Yeah, I, I'm in Hamburg, and I go to East Aurora often, mostly to get chicken wings at Bar Bill. But, uh, the but, Bill.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you know, also do the Roycroft and the East Aurora players and so on and so forth. Oh, yeah. So, so you're you're from around here. Yeah. And your parents were.
1: What did your parents do? My dad was a manufacturer. My mother was a housekeeper. Mm-hmm. My dad was from Northeast Ohio. He was the son, of, the son and the nephew of a couple guys that started a plastics company in Buffalo, okay. Protective Closures. My mother was from South Carolina, Spartanburg. And uh, the pair met during World War II when my dad was at Camp Croft in uh, Spartanburg. And he came to Buffalo after the war to start working in plastics. And I'm an only. And both my parents were educated and very intelligent. Mm-hmm. And um, my dad was uh, a very hard-minded thinker, real objective, mm-hmm. down to earth. Yes. Um, and my mother was—
0: Empirical facts are what Im-
1: are yep. important. Well, they're important to me, too. Mm-hmm. They're important to me, too. Mm-hmm. But um, my mother was a real good storyteller, and she never pretended to be, but she just noticed things about life. And, and the, you know, the, the Southerners, the American South has a big Celtic— In flux, Hmm. Irish, Scottish, French. Yes. And the Celts were the master storytellers of Europe, you know. And you just wonder if a little bit of this tradition of storytelling came with the immigrants to the American South. So that's probably a detour. (laughs) But yeah, but I I was educated, uh, you know, went to a good public high school, Orchard Park, uh, Denison University in Ohio, a nice, you get a good education there, at least when I was there, you really could. And uh, Boston College, yes. so I've had a real good education, and it was a serious education. It was an education in, in the arts and history. Mm-hmm. You know, we were studying difficult literature, classic literature. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so your your family doesn't have any background in this sort of thing, and your dad, that you said, you know, the empirical facts. Oh, absolutely. were absolutely important to him, as as with you. So we can't pinpoint anything there, except for the you know Saturday afternoon TV shows and things uh, like that, that uh, and and the monsters. But there must have been something else. Geez. That, uh, that well, you know, maybe it was a very gradual
1: thing. You're that, getting close to something.
0: There had to be have been a point, in, in not only where you sort of gave up your literary career or possibilities or even your educational careers, and then grabbed onto this, it must have linked back to something. In, well, in your yeah, childhood yeah, or, or, or in your... You well, there know.
1: wasn't a traumatic vision of a, like a, no. a werewolf jumping out of the closet or something. <laughs> I you know, I'm, not. I'm not alone in being impatient with thi- the physical world as it is. Mm. If this is all it is... I absolutely you know, agree, yes. And there have been a lot of artists, a lot of artistic movements, romanticism was really frustrated with the idea, of not only romantic literature, but romantic music and architecture. Well, there wasn't a lot of romantic architecture, but romantic art, romantic painting, it's very fabulous and wild. And, and um, I'm pretty sure French surrealism, it, it might almost be thought that one of their motives was an impatience with material life as it is, as it is, and it's like if you're just impatient with that, it kind of gets you speculating and thinking, and you start to like fantasy. And as you
0: said, there has to be something more.
1: I think there or is. I Hope there's something more. I think there is, but I, I don't tell people what to believe. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm just referring yeah. to,
0: to your own your own. Feelings oh, I think so. Yeah. It. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The, yeah. I, I feel. It. I'm anxious for the future. Yes. I, oh. I, I am. I am of the belief yeah. that the future will be better. It, it may not be, be better after the next few elections or oh, anything, but it will be better in the long run. It just takes so, a long time for things to change and happen.
1: Think about the era we are in. Mm-hmm. On my cell phone, I can call up great literature, yes, great, great theater, mm-hmm. great music, the finest of, of humanity's humanities. And that's only in the last
0: twenty years, it's not even twenty years. On my phone, I
1: don't need to get up. Mm-hmm. And we could be in one of the finest ages of history. And what do you see the general? So many people, they don't read. They hardly think. I'm not saying stereotyping everybody, of course. But I mean, and it comes down to riots in the streets. And and, and this could be the most refined age of humanity's existence. And, you know. Talk about the extremes. The phone in one hand. And barbarism on Street the other. Street violence on the other. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I still think <laughs> but, to myself that, that it comes from education and a value for, for critical thought. Mm-hmm. Thought for its own sake. Yeah. As Hamlet says, "What what is a man if the chief good and market of his time be but to sleep and feed? Yes. A beast no more. Yes. We need to respect thought for its own sake. We need to respect people who don't agree with us. Uh, we're in such an intolerant age somehow right and how do we transcend it we need to be the model do you see that as part of your
0: goal that what you're trying to do is open minds it is mm-hmm.
1: exactly yeah that's pretty well said too yeah, sometimes i get lucky ah uh, well you've done it a couple <laughs> times today you're you're that's a double this will be highly editing you never know uh, highly edited. Uh, uh, uh.
0: Well, that's, again, we sort of skipped over how you got into this, but how you got into this really is what we've really talked about is more your motivation okay, and focusing on trying to open minds and trying to get people
1: to think beyond their... I've always done that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I like to be devil's advocate, not just to argue for the sake of arguing, but to try to help provoke thought. But actually, my decision to go into the supernatural-slash-paranormal was a career decision. I could have tried to get back into college teaching. Yeah. I could have tr- gone to another high school teaching. Or I could try out the freelance thing, and it was a good decision. It worked immediately. Mm-hmm. I had my first book deal within months of leaving education.
0: And did you look at the subject as something that was monetarily viable? Yeah. That, that I, <laughs> yeah, you I know, did. I mean, you, you literally made a, made a choice to, to, to switch to a career, to something that you could really make money at, as well as follow your your heart and your your
1: mind. Well, I thought I had the gift to be an author, Mm -hmm. and I thought I would be letting my life down if I didn't publish some books. But I was well aware that many authors these days, practically all of them, I mean, probably about 80% of the authors don't make a nickel at books, and there's another level that makes something. And then right at the top of the pyramid, it's almost like pro sports Mm -hmm. or pop music. Yes. All the money. The ones at the peak, yeah. All the money is in that last top of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. But there are some sustainable careers that are just under that. And if you've got one of those, you're really doing pretty well. But many authors, they don't really live well off book royalties. They give a lot of talks and they, they have some kind of a spin. And I've had a couple of spins. You know, I give a lot of talks during the year and have a ghost walks company.
0: Right. Well, I want to talk about that shortly, too, but let me let me make sure that, I, that I've got this clear. So you decided to s- switch careers, and th- your first step is to start writing, start writing books. Yeah. But as you said, the money really isn't there. It's also in other things that are sort of ancillary yep. and, and connected to That's the— f- as, you know, you become one of the foremost experts on the paranormal, certainly, if I can probably say in the Northeast— at least... That's
1: probably a good bet. Yeah? I know of you, of a few scholars I bow to. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can name them. But I would say, yeah, probably, certainly upstate, upstate New York. I just, if, if there's somebody out there better, I will take my hat off to them. But I, I just don't know anyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, a lot of people, it's actually been a little frustrating because I wrote my local books, you know, my upstate books, realizing that I've got a page number here. That the publisher has given me mm-hmm. and I can only fit so much in here I see and there's so much left I was really hoping my books would encourage people to dig farther and wider mm-hmm. and instead there's a ton of them that just rewrite my stuff hmm. it's frustrating they don't well I don't know if it really bothered me I guess but you know uh, it's like come on guys there's a big world out there you don't have to keep rewriting my stuff. Go find something new. <laughs> well, you became, you were the research al- out in that research element. Sure. Al- what I'm saying. Sure, it's only five years old. <laughs> we, we, we can rewrite it. <laughs> right. You know, hey, why don't they, I can think of a, like, look, To Kill a Mockingbird. That Nobody's written that in 100 years. Go for that, mm-hmm. you know. Wait a minute. It's been 500 years since somebody wrote Macbeth. Why don't you try that, you oh, know? Geez. So uh, what was your first subject? The first book was, was called Shadows of the Western Door. It is a yes. paranormal survey of the 15 Western counties of, of Western New York. So it must have included a lot of interviews, a lot of research. Oh, yeah. And those were the old days. Yeah. Well, you, when you, you couldn't just, yeah, I You didn't have it on the Internet. Mm-hmm. This is 95 through 97 that I was doing the research. You had to travel. You had to visit historical societies. People forget what a major revolution has happened in, in the facility of, of research these right. days. Right. There is no excuse to take material from a living writer without crediting them. Well, but I my first 90- book started out, I wanted to pitch something easy. That was 1997. I 97. It, right? I pitched uh, Brian Meyer, brilliant, hardworking guy. But Brian Meyer, I owe him a lot. He is the founder of a regional publishing company called Western New York Wares. Okay. And now I think they call it buffalobooks.com. But at any rate, I pitched him idea one which would have been easy. I just wanted to get a publishing credit. And he goes, well, I don't know about that. Maybe if you could shift it a little more this way. I go, okay, take a couple of weeks, rewrite the proposal, much more difficult book to write. He goes, well, now you're on the track. If you could pitch it a little more like that, third proposal comes in, but this is not uncommon. Third proposal comes in, he goes, okay, let's do that. So, damn it, now I gotta do some real work. A ton of work. Go out, but it was okay, it was such a good decision. So, uh, the book caught the low-hanging fruit Mm -hmm. in some subjects, like haunted sites, and it got almost everything there was in a few others, like the ancient mysteries, I mean, the really prominent general paranormal categories. Some of them were pretty covered in that book, and some of them were scratched. Mm -hmm. See, when I started doing that research, I probably had exactly the same suppositions as anybody in the world, anybody in the US. Because my influences were the same as theirs. Read a few books as a kid, but watched TV, you know, entertainment. I thought the same things they did. And then when I started getting into the subject, I had a lot of major realizations Mm -hmm. that I found really interesting. One thing led to another. Yes, and sometimes one thing led to one, and one thing led to another, and one thing led to, you know, they don't A dozen all... others. Yeah, yeah, they really, really did, and, and um, the way I think about most paranormal subjects is dramatically different from what the average person thinks showing up at my talks and tours. So, after you write the
0: first book, then how do the talks and tours begin after that? Okay. I mean, do you pursue I, this? Did somebody sure, pursue you? No. Did it go through your publisher? And... I had the idea. You did?
1: Yeah. I was I can in... get out there and
0: talk about this.
1: I was, well, yeah, I did. I thought, why don't I just tell them I'm an expert? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing about the ghost business is like you need no credentials. Like you show up at a party and you go, hey, I'm a uh, a doctorate. And they go, oh, where'd you get your degree? You know, what's your specialty, you know? Hey, I'm a lawyer, oh, where'd you get your, what, what's your field of law? What's your specialty, yeah. Yeah, you know, almost any field, they ask <laughs> you questions. and You go, hey, I'm a ghost guy, and they go, oh, cool, you know? <laughs> But, um, Start talking. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And um, <laughs> it's it's a field that gets a lot of people who probably haven't succeeded at many other things. You know, mm-hmm. I went at it as a researcher. You know, tried to be very objective. But where I got the idea for a ghost walk, I mean, as far as I know, London, England had been doing ghost walks since the nineteen seventies. Mm-hmm. I'd heard of them. Define
0: what ghost walk means, or what it meant in London, England, as opposed to well,
1: in London, England, it was almost certainly a historic walking tour, very similar to mine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Searching for ghosts? Or no, here's, no, 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 here's no. Where Folklore have storytelling. Storytelling. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. And um, but they would have gotten into so We're layers. not talking
0: about ghost hunters like the TV shows. We're talking <clears> about historical walking through certain areas, looking for areas where this has happened or that has happened.
1: Where people say something has happened, right. You find a haunted house and tell the stories of the architecture, yeah, the the earlier inhabitants. you you know it's it's something that's dramatically more interesting than just did you get an orb or not? Mm-hmm. But there are other types of American ghost walks. One type is one they probably ought to call a cemetery walk. They have actors in the cemetery impersonating people buried there. Oh. That's not really too paranormal. No, that's performance art. And, that, and it happens every October. There are haunted yeah. house places yeah. everywhere. Or- sure, that's another one that's- they might often call a ghost walk. It's yeah. where they have that jump scene. You know, they get yeah, yeah. people dressed up, jump out, scare I, you. I never understood that. But anyway, so you get the idea to start
0: the ghost walk
1: here. I did because I was in New Orleans playing a USTA tennis tournament. Mm-hmm. I was one of the representatives. I was a 5 I went to the 5-period, five five-o nationals in tennis, and there were ghost walks in New Orleans. And I took one, and I found it. I thought it was under-researched, hmm. and the tour guide didn't know anything about parapsychology. But yet, I figured, you know, we're talking proud. Buffalo deserves one of those. Western New York, you could do one of those. Mm-hmm. So I came back home and full of ideas, and I realized that uh, the research for a ghost walk is really tough, because you're walking. It's all it a sh- has to be a confined gotta, area yeah. of some kind. Yeah. And it's got to be walkable. It's got to be pleasant. So you've got to do real dense research on a small area. But I realized shortly that I went strategic. I've got a, a profile for this. And I, I can do it fairly quickly in an area that may not be that big. Because I know what to look for. Obviously, it starts with one or two really nice historic sites. Mm-hmm. And um, I can write up a ghost walk script in just a couple of days of really hard work for many communities. I see. Supernatural folklore or perceived supernatural experience is a lot more common than most people think. Hmm. And very often, you'll have a house here that is on the route of your tour and the history of the house and its architecture and earlier it happens. That can be 95% of your rendition and the public will love it. Hmm. Yeah, my company is called Haunted History Ghost Walks. You know, we're not like rotting dead zombies, ghost walks, or bloody war corpses, ghost walks, or
0: these aren't meant to scare or titillate. These these are informative. Yes, you know, and you're telling stories about what people said, as you said, you know, folklore of what was purported to have happened in these locations.
1: Every one of our tours has at least one knockout story of something somebody perceives that happened to them.
0: Mm -hmm. And you don't need to be standing there with a flashlight under your face. I don't.
1: No, I I actually wise (laughs) off about that stuff, you know. I I really, I I had a couple of uh, college students on my tour uh, about two weeks ago in East Aurora, and both of them said, boy, if you had many kids from our college, there'd be some triggers here. I Mm -hmm. got triggers, like what? They go, well, you're wising off about that street where all the deaths happen. <laughs> I like, go, oh my God, can't anybody have any fun anymore, <laughs> you know? Uh, don't take yourself so seriously, I, I don't know. Well, that would be one of my theories, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah.
0: Now, the ghost walks, it's not just Halloween-related. You do these at various times throughout the year. Yeah. Are there, are there certain times that are more ripe for that sort of thing to happen?
1: Well, Halloween every of uh, month of October everybody's thinking ghosts. Sure, if sure. you if you have an enterprise and you put the word ghost on it and it's in October and you can't do all right you better find something else to do. But <laughs> if your question was is October particularly Halloween more significant for perceived ghost sightings. That wasn't I, the question, but that's a good question. Right. The answer is not in my experience. Mm-hmm because I keep a pretty good set of files that are decades old on the dates of events. Dates can be very suggestive. What I find is that certain communities come to life at different times of year.
0: Mm-hmm. Communities being villages villages
1: like, sure. like East Aurora or someplace. Sure.
0: And is there any explanation for that?
1: Well, if, for instance, Lewiston mm-hmm. came to life, if I detected a pattern that they got really lively in um, December. It would be because the entire town was burned and uh, dozens of people, up to 100 people massacred during the Mm -hmm. War of 1812 in a December event. But with East Aurora, I'll take that as an example. I live there, I write down everything anybody tells me. I notice a pattern at the Roycroft campus associated with the outbreak of psychic folklore, third week in June, third week in December, summer solstice huh winter solstice interesting I thought so too you virtually never make it through a June or a Christmas season without a new ghost story and they're very often some of the best you get Mm -hmm. some of the and when I say a good story I mean one that's got a beginning a middle and an end Because there's a difference between a report and a story. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you can get enough information that's got some connections to make a good story out of it, now that is when it gets cool. But yeah, right around the solstices in East Aurora, it is super cool.
0: And again, it's it's not your gig to try to explain these things. You are merely reporting them, reporting the story. So you're not about to project any explanations for why... As you said, the solstice turns out to be a hot period for this particular town. You may have some theories, but not necessarily
1: You're a, right on. a scientific You're right on about explanation. that. I wait for them to ask me why I think, and most of the time I tell them, do I look like God? <laughs> but I will tell you, in the patterns, that can be sort of an explanation on its on its own. You know, I mean, there was a point when Stalin was talking to, I think, Churchill, and they're talking about the quality versus the quantity of his army. And and Stalin said, well, I think there's a certain type of quality and quantity. You know, it's like if I send 500 tanks against their 20, Mm something's going to break through. The vast mass of reports and patterns, it almost feels like an explanation. When people are in certain places in the earth. And certain frames of mind? I can't tell you what frame of mind they're in.
0: But I mean, because of uh, well, obviously because of the Halloween thing. But might there be, might there be something about people's receptiveness that they're more receptive or more open at
1: a certain time? So they. Yeah, know, I would say sure. Yeah, time yeah. and place. Yeah, but that's been part of my interest is the possibilities that there's a geological or an architectural. Mm-hmm component mm-hmm. to ghost stories now people who watch reports people who watch tv they're used to the historic you know they think you know oh yeah there was a guy got killed there so of course right. it's going to be haunted and you know there's that's one of the profiles folklore does attract to places where there's been trauma mm-hmm. but there are other places outdoor spaces get lots of ghost stories of some of them so i have become very interested in the connection between physical place Hmm. and the outbreak of perceived supernatural experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also interested in the witness experience, because you do get multiple witness sightings. There are many stereotypes about ghost reports, and they're not borne out by TV. I mean, all ghosts, they don't look like human spirits. All ghosts don't even look like people. Mm -hmm. They're animal ghosts, there are ghosts reported of inanimate things. There's a phantom car in uh, Forest Lawn Cemetery. Well, they, they say there is. I see, okay. There's a ghost train in the Hudson Valley. There's a ghost train in Angola, New York. Oh, really? Well, it's reported. I haven't seen it, <laughs> but at least as figments of folklore. And a large percentage of the ghosts that eyewitnesses report Are not behaving intelligently. Mm -hmm. They're not looking at you. They're not hello. (laughs) You know, they're they're not trying to communicate. They're just like doing their thing. Yeah. They're walking towards you. They're walking away. They're walking across you. They're walking in uh, patterns that appear to relate to an earlier structure on the site. Hmm. Okay. Um, Where
0: where a stairway used to be. Yeah,
1: exactly right. Interesting. They don't look like they're back with a message. They look almost like films, like a sort of a natural video. Yes. But that's not all of them. There is a small percentage that really do appear to be back with a message. Hmm. Oh, yeah. We often call those crisis apparitions or NDEs, near death experiences. See, your average ghost appears to be site specific. Yes. It's stuck where it is. A lot of them, when you can get enough information, you know, decades of reports, some of the time the spook doesn't move very much. It's always in the same room. Always in that same space. Yeah. Yeah. Doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty monotonous afterlife. <laughs> but that rare percentage, my guess would be 1%. But that rare percent of an intelligent apparition, because mm-hmm. I use the word apparition a lot. It's something people see. Yes. It's important to distinguish that from a, a spirit, because I don't know what a spirit would look like. Right.
0: Something visible. is, is That's Apparition. That's
1: what the word means. Yeah. And I use that a lot more commonly than ghost. On the rare case of an apparition that does appear to have a message, it's not sight-specific. It'll find you. Hmm. Whoever it's targeting, it'll find them where they are.
0: That's a, now that's getting, yep. now we're getting into creepiness. We
1: are, well, but they're not hostile or dangerous. Very often they're benevolent and they're trying to say goodbye.
0: Oh, no, but I mean it's creepy you know? just because there's motivation there. And there, there is willfulness of some sort.
1: Yeah, but that shouldn't be creepy. That should be a much better evidence of the survival of consciousness after death.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a very good point.
1: I've got a number of wonderful poetic stories about that. But I'll tell you, when I interview eyewitnesses, though, 95% of them, and the ones that seem to me the most serious, there's a pattern there. Mm -hmm. This apparition that comes to them, they see it once. They never see it again, Mm. just once. And typically, it's around the time of the death up to a week week later. I mean, I had groups, if I'm talking a group of 100 people, probably 10 of them, 10 to 20 very often have had an experience of seeing mm-hmm. a lost loved one and they all say the same thing just once within a week of the death. But hmm. sometimes the apparition shows, well, the person is still alive. That is interesting. Hmm. Yep. But uh, there are ghosts of living people, or at least apparently, Huh. Yes, because, for instance, what would you call it when Father Baker was said to buy locate men? Yeah. I, I, one of them had to be a ghost, or else think. you don't believe it. I, right, but I
0: did a show for Road Less Traveled, one of the first shows I ever yeah. did, and it was called Private Viewing. Huh. It was written by a local playwright, John Elston, and it was about remote viewing. Are you familiar oh, yeah, with this yeah. Concept? Well, yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah, and it's I, it's political, it, it, not just remote viewing, but remote, uh, you know, affecting things uh, yeah, remotely. The, so uh, that. that was cool. I wish I'd seen it. It was a, it really was a good a good play. Yeah. But anyway, that that th- that almost brings to mind what you're talking about. That, I'm here, but I'm manifesting myself there while I'm alive, and watching something happening over there. In this particular case, I think there were political ramifications, you know. Well, hell yeah, it the, was during the, the Cold War. government was trying to make it happen. The
1: CIA was in competition with the KGB.
0: Okay. And trying it, to well, weaponize. This was, a, this was what has happened since then, a more modern update
1: oh, of— I was not aware they were still doing it. They probably— I thought they, they got defunded. No,
0: no, it. they may not. But the play was about what oh, if okay. they yeah. did.
1: Yeah, no, there is some very that's the cool yeah. stuff going on during the Cold War— involving the CIA versus the KGB. Mm-hmm. The um, CIA were, you know, they all started out experimenting with telekinesis and psychokinesis. You know, the Russians have video of a couple of these women. Let's see, Nino Kulagana, Rosa Kulashova. I know there was another one that was pretty impressive. But the Russians decided that, you know, I mean, they were trying to like be able to kill somebody remotely, from five thousand yeah you know, that was what they would have wanted to uh, do of <laughs> or control their mind or whatever you know the tender-hearted KGB of you know? course they, how would they right? but they decided ultimately that human aptitudes were unreliable and not strong enough anyway mm-hmm. you just can't do it all the time and you, you can't do enough of it mm-hmm. it's like th- these women were they were moving grains of sand around that were covered by a piece of plastic. So the wind couldn't be an explanation. You know, it's on the table and the women are They found out a couple of very interesting things. One was it was enormously stressful for the women to use this Mm. amount of psych, of their own energy. And when they were studied after these experiments, they were very often exhausted and their blood sugar levels had dropped to an almost dangerous. So strenuous. Isn't, yeah, Uh, yeah. yeah. So in other words, they decided, look, we're never going to get a Harry Potter out of this. the americans i don't know everything about what they did but they seem to have focused on remote viewing yes and being able to see things from a distance yeah and they apparently got very good at it Hmm. and um you know it depends on the quality of your talent because some people seem to have a natural aptitude for this stuff i wouldn't my psychic aptitudes i'm a low roller I, it, I, I think I am, too. I wouldn't have made—if I if I was any good at even reading p- personalities, much less ESP, I wouldn't have made half the decisions I've made in business, you know. Yeah, yeah. Have you done a book about theater ghosts? No, there is one. There is it's one. It's magnificent. Because Buffalo, ex-
0: you, know, we, you know, we have our— Oh, hell yeah. Kevin Oakey has one. Uh, oh, they're all haunted. And, uh, the,
1: <laughs> except except maybe—I'm not sure about Studio Arena. That's the only theater in their new location. Yeah. When they were where the Pfeiffer was, mm-hmm. they had, and now it's Town Ballroom, they had loads of ghost stories, but then they yes. moved to... Right.
0: The, yeah. the only thing that would be at the Studio Arena now called <laughs> 710 would be Ghosts of Dead Strippers because it, it was first opened as the Burlesque, the Palace Burlesque, and, uh, you know, it's a relatively new yeah. building, and these things yeah. tend to have a lot more history to them, like well, the Town
1: Ballroom. you know, it's like... Um, Doing a book on haunted theaters is just like shooting fish in a barrel or, you know, I mean, it's just, they're all haunted. I actually have, though, to be honest with you, Peter, I have an article in draft about Buffalo's haunted theaters that I was thinking of turning into a Halloween article. And Mm -hmm. it's almost so voluminous. How far do you go? Really? And it's like so obvious. You know, what new revelation am I going to bring to the subject that every actor knows more about it than I do? I'm also working an article on the little people. It's a type of an apparition, like fairies. And I'm hoping...
0: This is not like the little girl
1: ghost that you talked about in one of your videos. Right, That's you are. Ver- it appears very to be a different... Yeah. The little girl ghost is an exquisitely common, it's probably the number one common ghostly form.
0: Yeah, I find but, that
1: fascinating. Uh, well, I do too. And I can conjecture about why in a little while, but there's a separate apparition category that I call the little people. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest shocks I had when I started doing this research 25 years ago. Like, I'm a lit man. I love the great literature of the British Isles, the Celtic people, the Germanic, Scandinavian. They've got their fairies. I never thought I'd meet anyone who said they saw one. (laughs) I would have thought, what are you, crazy? But as I started interviewing people and going through the files, I would realize there is this very rare category of a spontaneous apparition that appears to be like a really small human being. The Native Americans of our area, the Iroquoian nations, Seneca, Tuscarora, all the Iroquoian nations, the six nations, they have strong traditions about little people. Wow. Yep, and they're very similar to those around the world. Of those of the Celtic societies, the Germanic, they are remarkable. These patterns. And
0: and is there any historic connection? Why little people? I, I mean, are they supposedly related to a, a race of? I hate to say it, you know, like hobbits <laughs> and those things from the Lord <laughs> of the Rings. They're smaller that existed, than that. You, smaller than that. Uh, yeah. Okay, well,
1: right. the, the uh, we're talking about the, uh, yeah, or even smaller. Uh, they're, but Native American people. All over the United States, a great many of them, the all the Algonquin-speaking societies, you know, the uh, Abnaki, the, the Penobscot, they have all believe in it, they call them Pukwudgies. They believe that they're these little mysterious people who live in the woods, they're supernaturally powerful. Uh, the Iroquoian people believe in that, they call them the Jugao, and English speakers often nickname the, the Jungies. The Jungies. Yeah, it's just their short, their nickname. But actually, I'm giving a talk on the reservation. I'm giving a talk on the Allegheny that I'm really looking forward to it because it's a storytelling venture in memory of an old friend, uh, Duane Bowen, who was a Seneca storyteller. Hmm. And he was a culture preserver. He was preserving the supernatural stories of his people. I'm trying to do that for mine. But at any rate, as far as the little people go, children see them. Children. And children, yeah. You know, everywhere in world tradition that the fairies, the little people, mm-hmm. this magical race of supernatural people, everywhere they're found. Uniformly they're associated with three things with nature. They live in the woods, mm-hmm. they talk to the animals, with the human dead. It's like it's not like when you die you become a fairy. It's right. more like special humans can join their world and not really die. Like their realm when they go into it is pretty close to where the human dead are, and they okay. have some information about the human dead. But also, they're associated with human children. children. Huh. They like children, they come to children, they protect children, and sometimes they don't. Okay. Yeah. Well,
0: uh, well I, I don't want to let this go by. I know you were your first novel series, The Whistlers yeah you tell us quickly about this about this series
1: well it's about the hardest plot to describe there is yeah but it's about a country english teacher who starts getting this is fiction, call- by the way Correct? oh it's a big whopper um, okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it's set between 2007 and uh, 2012 it's about a country english teacher who starts getting called in for interviews by the fbi and the dea mm-hmm. and he's kind of an alter ego of mine he's a paranormal writer and an English teacher like I used to be. And I figured, well, that's a pretty good motif for a psychic detective, you know. So Mm -hmm. country English teacher by day, psychic detective by night, but he writes articles and so they call him in because some of the stuff he's written is eerily prophetic about some developments that have alarmed them, including the appearance of a new drug in Buffalo, which appears to have a South American origin, which appears to activate ESP. Hmm. The uh, FBI has a wing that's on the trail sort of the Indiana Jones wing they're on the trail of a of a black market antiquities ring i see that appear to be connected with terrorists of some kind and they make their money selling native american stealing and selling native american artifacts so somebody finds a perfectly formed human jaw made out of a quartz crystal at a burial mound in ohio they put it on the uh, Put it up on for sale on the internet, and then the three pot hunters are found dead. Well, this is obviously a component of a crystal skull.
0: (laughs) Yes. Well, I mean, yes, or
1: else it's crystal jaw. Crystal jaw, (laughs) just a a one-off, you know. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is that these very unusual people start appearing around the world. They they look like anorexic, shriveled up beggars, blind, and they don't speak, and they just people start seeing them. And these three factoids come together, and they. The guy's writing has foreshadowed it, so the FBI keep calling him in to ask him questions. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, he meets a girl. Nice. Yeah, that's when the trouble always starts (laughs) in my life, you know. You meet one of them and, whoa, 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 (laughs) But it's just quite a yarn. It, It hops all over the American continents. It follows the narrator. It contains passages of his literature. It follows a team of American undercover agents paramilitaries in the Andes in in Guatemala in it's just a hell of a yarn and it ends with an apocalyptic 2012 scene involving the crystal skulls I mean I absolutely love the thing (laughs) but I actually have a more recent one it's a book called it came out last fall it's a book called the prince of the air it's the memoirs of a contemporary wizard and don't say Harry Potter because the narrator is always yeah, mocking out Harry one. Potter. No. Ha, ha, ha. but I'm going through an exceptionally creative period of my life, and I just want to produce good work. I want to write good books because you know a lot of writers they just dry up. Mm-hmm. And when I was younger, I might not have had the uh, sustained energy and the drive yes. to be able to put in the work. To it's bring a lot off, of work. It's a lot of writing
0: work. is a lot of work. You they know, they he, admire it tremendously.
1: Well, you're very kind. It, it's a very kind of a self motivated, self driven work because you know you got to realize that a writer can work on a book for years and not get a pat on the back. Mm-hmm. Now I'm fortunate enough that I've got enough books out there and I'm in an area where people know me. Just about every day, somebody says something nice to me about my work or you know they know who I am. I mean I gave a talk last night to. I don't know, how many hundred people down in uh, Cuba, and uh, they love to talk the evening before I spoke in Orchard Park. I get a lot of pats on the back, but you really can work a very long time late at night cackling to yourself about how, how funny this is or how smart you are <laughs> or wait till they get a load of this scene, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you just need a lot of uh, drive, and you have to be able to work without other people pushing you. You, because nothing will happen if you don't do it
0: no you have to right you have to be self-motivated
1: well but you sacrifice for that you know as Norman mailer the eminently quotable Norman mailer said literature is the only profession in which a man will sacrifice money the respect of his fellow men and the love of beautiful women hmm. in the hope of someday gaining money <laughs> the respect of his <laughs> fellow men
0: <laughs> all right I've when you walked in, you said you had a story that you had oh, just heard. Oh, yeah. Let's let's end with a, with a okay. story that you just, something you just heard.
1: Last night. Okay. Let's I hear it. I can't give a lot of details, but That's here right. it goes. I've written a lot about the Native American, you know, the Iroquois and mm-hmm. supernatural traditions. I wrote a book on it. It's called the Iroquois Supernatural. I wrote it with one of my best friends, Michael Bastien, an Algonquin. He's in some of the videos with you, YouTube videos. Yeah, he is. He's going to be on TV this fall with me, too. But one of the ways you could tell a witch in action, an Iroquois witch, because they don't look different than we do. Mm -hmm. But if they're on the no good, and I mean a witch, not a medicine person, not a healer. This is a power person Mm who is kind of working selfishly. If you'd see them walking at night on these kind of frosty trails of the upstate, one way to tell them, by sight is by the way they breathe. If as they walk at night, every time they exhale, there's an orange, fiery light that's inside them, mm-hmm. which shine through their nostrils. If they open their mouth to breathe, you can see a little bit of the luminous light come out. And this condition of what they call, what the anthropologists call internal luminosity, it's found among witches and shamans worldwide. That's one way you tell an Iroquois, in witch, and it's widely thought that the, the witchcraft isn't happening anymore. Well, ha-ha.
0: <laughs>
1: After my talk last night in Cuba, New York, a guy comes up and goes, look, I've got a story for you. I didn't know what to make of it until right now, but here it goes. When I was a young guy, and he was a white guy, you know, he goes, I lived near one of the reservations. Half the kids in my school were native, and I knew lots of Native people. I worked in one of the stores in town, and a lot of Native people came in. So anyway, one night, I'm out of college. I'm probably 19, 22, or whatever he was. He goes, I'm partying on the edge of the reservation in a wooded area. There's a lot of Native people there, and we're just drinking wine and beer and all that, and some people are smoking weed and all that, but he goes, I, I wasn't doing any of that. I, didn't, I don't believe in that. But anyway, drinking all that beer, I... Uh, had to walk into the woods to have a wee. So he walks a ways away from the people. And he remembers standing by a babbling brook. And it's a dark woods at night. And he can see the campfire there, the bonfire they're gathered around through the trees. Mm -hmm. And two men start walking toward him in the darkness. And as they walk and as they breathe, he can see a glow coming out of their nostrils. And when they open their mouths, he can see a glow. And as they get closer to him, it's pitch black. it's dark. He's in the trees. He doesn't move. He's scared as hell. They shouldn't. What are they doing out here anyway? Just walking through the woods, right? And one of them turns to look in his direction. And when the guy exhales, he can see the light lighting up his face a little bit, and he recognizes him. He's the father of one of his native friends. He's someone that would have known him by sight. It's a guy who knew him by name when he came into the store the kid worked in. And he just holds his breath, hoping nobody sees him. But through the darkness, the guy looked at him as if he could see them. And then they just walk away. And you know, the guy waits in the woods for ten minutes to be sure he's safe, and then he runs back to the campfire. And everybody goes, "Boy, you were gone a long time." <laughs> and he. So the next day, he talks to one of his native friends, and he says he doesn't reveal names, but he says, "I saw something really crazy last night at, on the reservation," and he described it. And, and he goes, and I know the name of the guy. What should I do? And the, the kid just looks at him and says, you know, you keep that one to yourself. Keep it to yourself. What happens on the reservation stays, stays. on the reservation. <laughs> it's like Vegas, you know. <laughs> See what I'm telling you, that this stuff, the reality of it mm-hmm. is so much more interesting than the entertainment.
0: Yes, it is. You know? It absolutely is. Well, Mason Winfield, this has been delightful. Hey, thank you, thank you for super joining Super fun, I appreciate it. And uh, how, I happy look,
1: Halloween! Happy Halloween! And to And remember everyone. one thing: don't get scared. <laughs> whatever you do, <laughs> nothing to be scared of here.
0: No, no, you're thinking of a different costume. No, that's that—that's the sarcastic old coot. A completely different Halloween costume, which I wear from time to time, even when it's not Halloween. Oh, never mind. Hey, Mason Winfield, putting a button on Halloween for 2022. And I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope you will be back to listen to more in a couple of weeks, because we will be interviewing Katie Melanson one of the most in-demand directors in Western New York. and Katie is in fact directing a show that will open right before the next podcast. It's called Guards at the Taj. and it is opening at the RLTP theater, 456 Main Street. go to org and get your tickets. We will be talking to Katie Mellinson about her life and that particular show, Guards at the Taj. Which is an incredible script. So I'm looking forward to seeing it. And I will see you in a couple of weeks on RLTP's Off Road with me, Pete Pomisano.